1: Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. I'm your host, Alisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And today I'm really, really honored and really, really excited to be interviewing Sivie Reiter and Razel Kielsen from OHEL. Before I introduce them, please, if there is a topic you want to hear, if you want to be interviewed, if you know someone you want to be interviewed, if you have um, comments about episodes we've done already, please reach out to us at health at JOMA.org, H-E-A-L-T-H at JOMA.org. We want to hear from you. Cindy Raider is the Director of Children's and National Trauma Services, OHA. She currently directs outpatient mental health services for adults and children, school-based services for youth, early childhood mental health and trauma services. In that capacity, Tibby has overseen the implementation of evidence-based practice models across programs, utilizing current research and data-driven processes to produce meaningful outcomes. She is a specialist in trauma and disaster mental health, having run crisis counseling programs after 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy. She has intervened on local and national traumas, including the Houston floods, the Pittsburgh shootings, and the Woolsey, California fires. She has led the OHAL mental health response to COVID, including the pivot to telemental, health treatment and virtual psychoeducational sessions that attracted tens of thousands of participants throughout the pandemic. She co-created a resilience workbook that was used by 10,000 children during the pandemic and was named a mental health hero during COVID by New York City Mayor's Office of Community Mental Health. Ms. Raider facilitated the development of trauma-informed school-based resources, including Return to School COVID Toolkit and a trauma-sensitive schools model, Resilient Schools. Most recently, Ms. Rader co-authored a book for preschool children, I Feel That Way and That's Okay, also co-written by Naomi Baum, PhD, and an accompanying teacher's guide. Razel Kielsen is a licensed clinical social worker. She has been working with young children for 15 years, first as a therapist, and now is both a therapist and a clinical supervisor of all treatments of the Early Childhood Mental Health Program at ohio Razel treats early childhood. PTSD, postpartum reactions, childhood anxiety, parent-child relationship challenges, and divorce reactions. Razel was trained in multiple modalities, including child-parent psychotherapy, CPP, space, which we talk about in this interview, interpersonal psychotherapy, IPT, Triple P. Razel collaborated on the development of the book, I Feel That Way and That's Okay, and other resilience workbooks developed by OHA. Hazel is a proud mother of five children and loves to read especially good children's books. She can often be found combining her love of reading with mothering. Hi, Zivi. Hi, Razie. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Hello. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're so happy to be here.
1: I'm really honored and I'm really excited. I always say that and I actually always mean it. That's like my intro. It's my standard intro, but I really mean it because I only have guests that I'm excited about interviewing, by definition. And you're here to talk about resilience, which is absolutely so foundational. It is so important. And so I really want to dive into different aspects of resilience. Um, You guys have written a book. Actually, you co-wrote this book. Um, I feel that way. And that's okay. I have it. Okay. (laughs) I bought it because I thought it was so important. The minute it came out, I bought it. And I think it's great. So I want to start with that book because that's new. That came out recently. I'd love to hear what led to the writing of this book and what age is it's most appropriate for
2: Sure, sure. So I guess I'll I'll start off and Maisel could... uh could uh, add to it. So we do a lot of work in the resilience space, you know, here at um, OHEL. And actually during COVID, we created a COVID-19 resilience workbook that was actually used by almost 10,000 children during the pandemic. And we also do a tremendous amount of work in the early childhood space, right? We work a lot with kids like zero to five and their parents. It's actually impossible to work with kids uh, zero to five and not work very closely together with their parents. All of our work is very much through like an attachment lens. And we really, really believe in the power of that like early intervention and those early years and how much really power that you have to set the kids on really a trajectory for positive mental health and just building skills that will help them for really their entire lives. Um, So we work so much in that space and we had so many people ask us, you know, preschools and just different, you know, uh, organizations that we work with, what are you doing for the little ones? Like this is a workbook, you know, workbook, it was for kids, you know, five, six to 10 or 11, a workbook is not developmentally appropriate, right, for the little ones. So we brainstorm, we have a really a wonderful team, a wonderful early childhood team, and Razel's the, the supervisor of that team. And we kind of brainstorm, okay, what are we gonna do for the little ones? And, and what are we gonna create that will help build resilience in these kids and their caregivers? And we couldn't decide between a coloring book or a story book, okay? Both, you know, developmentally appropriate. And so we actually, in the end, settled on both. Um, we created the story book, but there actually are free supplementary coloring pages on our website. Oh, so fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of everyone can get, parents and teachers can get the best of both worlds. But that was really what happened. It really kind of was born from just this need to be able to do something also for this population, something meaningful, but it was also developmentally appropriate. So that was kind of the idea was born. And then really we worked on it, I would say, really collaboratively. It was very much um, based on the principles of the work that we do in our early childhood, like mental health program, our understanding of attachment and um you know social emotional learning right we really believe that social emotional learning is a greater predictor in those skills it's a greater predictor of academic success than even IQ for kids. So it's just mm. a mission that we really believe in that we really want it uh, further. And I'll let Razel add to that because I'm sure she also has a lot to say. <laughs>
3: it was really, it was a really exciting project because we were thinking, okay, we're going to do a book, but how is our book going to be different? And I really think I challenge people actually to find something that can meet this piece. And what we did is we said, there's a lot of books. Some are feeling books. We have tons of books and I'm in one of our treatment rooms, we have tons of books. Some are written from a therapeutic standpoint, some are or not they talk about feelings they talk about experiences but we felt like what is missing was that first step which is well how do you know how you feel mm. and that's the interception which I hope we're going to talk more about but our conversation starts before the feeling is aware and when we explain interception I think you'll have an idea but yeah. I'm, I'm going to really have you like say it slowly because it's a long word Uh, introception. So should I talk a little bit about that? What I think is really unique about our book is that we ask the question, how do you know how you feel? See, you don't start out with feeling awareness, right? You're not like, oh, I'm sad. Um, And really that leads into introception, which is a one of the eight senses. And it is not exclusively about feelings. It's actually, and I'm sure as a pediatrician, you deal with toilet training and food issues and all those things are also related to interception. Interception is the ability to be aware of the sensations within your body, um, right? So that's teaching a, a child being where they need the bathroom, but they can also be about being aware of what my body is feeling. And that's a first step. So really what I think our book does, which is unique, is we talk about that first step. We talk about helping children be aware of how they feel. And what is really important is we're not teaching introspection. Actually, if a child seems to lack awareness of what's going on in their body, uh, that can, we typically think might be a sign of maybe a child struggling with spectrum, like a spectrum child. Or well, sensory
1: can, integration, which doesn't have to just be spectrum to be. Yeah, yeah. or,
3: well... That one. And we also see it in trauma. So children Mm. who've experienced interpersonal trauma don't Mm. necessarily, because it was adapted to ignore what was going on inside their body. They, they don't, they've learned to use this globally and are not paying attention, but really from the time you're born, you're very aware of your internal experiences. Right. Mm. And that's I'm hungry. So I start to cry. And so that was really where we want to start the conversation with these are feelings. But before we say, this is happy. This is sad, ha- these are the labels. This is what makes you feel. We want to say, well, how do you know?
0: How do you know mm. how you
3: feel? And we tried to think, and this was really very fun and collaborative. Like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? And in the book, it's pretty broad. So we're not saying to a child, all of these you need to feel. And then, you know, you're feeling this. We're saying, no, think about these sort of sensations, maybe you have some of them. And that's how we know that mm. you are feeling happy, sad. So that's why we're really excited. It's like a new way of talking about feeling uh, recognition. And the reason this is really related to resilience is because we think, you know, being able to be seen for your experiences and being able to express your feelings um, and being able to understand how the world is impacting your internal system. Well, that's the foundation, right? of being able to manage when something big comes your way a big big or a little big right the normal bigs that happen but if you know I can manage and I can regulate or my caregivers can handle me and they can help me regulate well then you can bounce back from whatever that big thing is that happens and that's resilience right the ability to bounce back from something um that happens that sort of sets you off or shifts. Yeah, this is
1: incredible because there's so many books for kids on regular sensory type things, particularly the the basic senses. Not on entire section, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. If I can actually add to this, because we really want, firstly, because we do so much work in the space, we know a lot of the books that are out there. We know the tools that exist. And we really wanted to create something that added value. That wasn't going to be like just another book about emotions. We wanted something that really would be different and in a very practical way would help sort of teach these skills, which is also why we created some of those supplementary tools. That's not even just the book. It's almost like an experience, you know? Believe it or not, we've actually gotten a request from many of the preschools we're in to create teddy bear, um, teddy bears or puppets with the characters of the book and we're actually doing that.
1: So it's almost going to be
2: like a curriculum that you can really use to kind of really integrate those concepts with the kids. But that was like really important to us to do something that really added value that was different. that was like a contribution to the field and a lot of time and attention was Was put into those details of like what are we putting in this book? What is the message we want to communicate? Kind of like Riesel said, there's no shoulds, right? There's no shoulds when it comes to emotions, right? It's just everybody's different, and and you feel that way, and that's okay, and everybody feels differently, and that's okay. That's literally the refrain of the book, and even just in terms of being developmentally appropriate, you know, this cute little repetitive refrain it will appeal to the little ones, you know, and that was kind of the the thinking behind it. So right,
1: and it's a mantra that the parent can take with them later and use. Because of course, this is not just about reading a book one time or even many times it's about bringing yeah. him into life.
2: Yeah and also just even the whole model for the book is you know the caregiver figure the 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 teddy you know kind of accompanies and companions the teddy and teddy's you know friends kind of on this journey through learning about emotions and it's kind of that ever-present companion you know kind of with them co-regulating with them communicating to them and sort of like modeling this attachment that we're really looking and we're trying to kind of reinforce sort of in, in parents and children, because that is really the core of all of our work, very much through an attachment lens.
1: Right, so you keep using the word attachment and co-regulation. We really need to go deeper into that, define and then talk about that. Sure. It's one so of just, you, I don't know which
2: one i Yeah, yeah, no, them. of course. Well, you we have a lot to say about it, but attachment <laughs> is very but much- It's important, because to... not everybody will listen to you hear that, course. and it's
1: also important to understand all the issues that come with helping your child
2: deal with these feelings, right? Right, right. So attachment is very much at the core of all of our work and it's not just about preschoolers like we really believe that um, you know you can work on an attachment you can repair an attachment really at any age like it's very much I think the lens that we look at almost all mm-hmm. of our work our trauma work our work with teens, I work with even adults. Um, So, um, and a lot of our work actually that we even do with preschoolers even in the mental health space is like attachment based like we're treating not the parent, not the child, but the attachment, the relationship between them. But if there are ways that we can build resilience and kind of help, you know, have built a trusting secure attachment right between the parent and the caregiver and the child at the early ages again you're setting up that child for positive trajectory for their whole life, and you're going to help them build resilience. Um, so part of what um, attachment means is basically a foundation of safety, security, and trust that's established right between a caregiver and a child. So you might have heard the expression of "serve and return," right? Mm-hmm. That a child expresses a need, and then that need is seen, heard, right, and addressed, right. So they're honored that that need is honored, and uh, if they express a feeling, that feeling is heard and seen and witnessed, and they're not shamed, right? for expressing that need, and they're not, and that need is not dismissed. That would be the foundation of a, like a healthy and sort of secure attachment. The caregiver is present and emotionally attuned. This does not mean the caregiver is perfect. That doesn't mean the caregiver always gets it right by any means, right? Because you can always, uh, you can always uh, repair, you can always, you know, there's always a way to, uh, you know, sort of acknowledge and and repair. It's never, it's, uh, we always want to help parents feel sort of not hope, like uh, helpless, but, like it's okay, you know, it's okay. We make mistakes and that's how we learn and that's how our kids learn.
1: But wait, right, wait. Right. I mean that's know, this is such an important point I want to underscore it that when we make mistakes, we can model that repair. We can model that resilience. Yes. Because we will make mistakes. I I, I don't like it when parents hear this and they feel like they have to be the perfect parent.
3: No. I, so I I think, want to
1: underscore that. And
3: well, I mean the famous I think John Bowlby right, a good enough mother is good enough. Mm, and right. I think what I do in my work is I say, actually, misattunement. So, the moment when you missed something that was really important to your child or you couldn't regulate, and I wanna talk more about what that looks like co regulating, but yeah,
1: co-regulating. the moment mm-hmm. you don't get it right mm-hmm.
3: and you don't feel like you got it right and you don't feel attached, that misattunement offers an opportunity called mm-hmm. repairing. So, okay. it's not that, oh, you don't get it 100%, you got a 70 It's that, no, you need to get 70s because you need to have moments where you can repair. And actually, with our most intimate relationships, we should have moments of repair because repair creates intimacy. It means Oh, I see. I didn't get it right. But you're so important. I'm going to get it right next time. And the people who we're not close with, we don't need to have repairs. We don't have misattunements. And if we do have misattunements, we go on our way because we're like, I'm not going to see them again, or they're not super important. It's the most important people that we will have misattunements. But the key, and and this is where the healthy development happens, right, is that I wasn't seen uh, for a child, right, or I wasn't understood, or my need wasn't important. And I feel really not good about it. But then I have the, the repair is that moment when they say, no, I'm, I did it wrong and it's okay. It's human, right? All of those messaging that you're going to give to a child when you have misattunement and repair are so foundational to healthy relationships throughout the lifespan. So we're not saying, Oh, mommy's don't worry. If you don't get a hundred, it's hard to get a hundred. So we're saying, of course you don't get a hundreds because you're close with this child. You're with them all the time. You will get it wrong. And that's not a problem.
2: Right. And we also tell parents because we hear from parents sometimes like, oh, my child did X, Y, and Z, and my child was very upset. And I basically said instead of like honoring their sadness, I said, oh, don't cry, or I, you know, I rescued them, or I probably, you know, whatever I did that I, I shouldn't have done, and like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And we always say it's okay, the bus will come around again. Like we really mm-hmm. believe like it's okay. You'll have plenty of opportunities, and that's all part of the process.
1: But right. I want to talk for just a minute because as a pediatrician, I see parents drowning under the pressure. Mm -hmm. of parenting today which has become a verb right i mean the expectations are sky high and the danger that i see to focusing on attachment which of course is important is raising the bar too high and having parents you know really struggling with trying to reach what they think is that that correct type of parenting so i want to talk just for a few minutes about how we're not saying that every second of the day your job is to constantly Right, work on this. Does that make sense? We're human, we're busy, we may not. I think what
3: you're are you referring to the the feeling that parents feel like they have to protect and validate or help well, a child navigate every experience?
1: What- well yes, yes, I am, because I mean I'm thinking about um there was a, a pediatrician Sears and he had these books on attachment parenting and there's this idea that you should parent through the night even when you're sleeping, your child should sleep right. with you. Day sleeping pediatrics, we don't recommend that, but anyway, <laughs> so we don't so
3: mean attachment like maybe whatever. Attachment, I want to clarify a theory this I don't that has been, is, yeah, it's been adapted by so. I mean, right, a lot of evidence based interventions use the word attachment, so attachment is not like copyrighted, but what right. we mean is the general theory and, and of that as humans we understand the world interpersonally so when and it's particularly important in the zero to five although i will definitely explain it is important throughout the lifespan but it's particularly important in zero five because children don't understand how to understand the world they come in and they're like what is this place and the way they are primed to understand the world is through their caregiver and they are looking at the caregiver to say, when do I need to be afraid? Can Mm -hmm. my needs be met? Am I important enough for my needs to be met? And all this begins to develop the foundation of self and the expectations of the world, the expectation of other humans. So when we mean attachment, that's what we're talking really about, that experiencing the world through interpersonal relationships. And because little children have so many needs, I mean, the littler they get, the more needs they need help being met, there are and they are primarily in the care of caregivers, right? And particularly a mother and a father, those relations are are really impactful. But this is something we navigate throughout the lifespan, right? We're we're constantly learning about new relationships. Right. Well you know, when you go to school you're learning about social relationships. When you're in your teenagers, you're learning about individuation and divine, defining yourself amongst your peers. And certainly marriage creates its own interpersonal. So it's really attachment is not just is not just about like always meeting someone's needs but attachment is about being tethered to other people in the world for you to understand it and to navigate it does that make sense and that's that's it, what we're it, talking about right not- it does
1: i just want to underscore again that this is not the parent's job to navigate for their child and smooth all the bumps out because that's their job to create yeah. this mm-hmm. attachment i want to just right. underscore that because it's misinterpreted i think
2: yeah right. yeah no definitely not. i actually just want to kind of add to what you're saying because i think it's a really important point like i personally do a lot of work with working parents and i feel like it's so important to just. Mm-hmm. sort of support and not shame parents Mm -hmm. and not create these like unrealistic sort of expectations. Mm -hmm. So building resilience is really very much a parallel process. You know, you build resilience in yourself as a parent, and then by doing that, you model building resilience in your children. Part of building resilience is self-compassion. Part of building resilience is taking care of your own needs. Like It's not about sacrificing your needs at the altar of your children by any means. And part of, I think, you know, teaching resilience to your children is modeling that, that your needs count. Your needs, come, you know, are very important. You're allowed to meet your own needs. You don't have to be that sort of stereotypical self-sacrificing, you know, altruistic mother as a matter or, or father. As a matter of fact, when you meet your own needs, you're so much better positioned to support your child, right? So that's I think like very very important to kind of give that over to parents because I think uh, I think you're right. Sometimes the messaging they get is you have to smooth every bump for your child. You have to make sure your kids are okay. Well, actually, that is not the way that you build resilience. It, the way that you build resilience is, the, is to let your child experience discomfort, to let your child experience challenges. Don't rescue them from those experiences. Don't problem solve them. Don't smooth every bump or prevent bumps from happening, but accompany them, companion them, be there with them, honor them, you know, witness what is happening for them, but don't fix it for them. That's not your job. Like paradoxically, that actually helps children. Build resilience,
1: but it's so hard. I love what everything you, both of you are saying, and thank you for expanding on it. Exactly the where, the direction I wanted you to go in. Um, it's so hard because precisely we feel like our job as mothers, fathers, is to fix things yeah. and to sit with them. In that discomfort can feel insurmountable, right? At times,
2: yeah yeah
3: that's why they have to get our book (laughs) because the the other piece of the book is the interception which is but the other piece is the co-regulation which is so my child is experiencing what we use and when we work with little kids is big feelings Uh, and big can be the good stuff too just by the way you can feel really excited and also feel dysregulated but let's talk about the ones that are harder right you have Mm. to bring your kids to get a shot or you have to drop them off at preschool and it's it would be inappropriate for you to spend the whole year in nursery right? right so these are things that your child has to then experience that discomfort. And in the book, we really talk about the co-regulating, not problem solving. And exactly what Civi's sort of highlighting that when you jump always into problem solving, the child gets two messages. One is that I can't manage, right? You You're mm-hmm. setting up a, you don't think they can handle it, right? And also you're setting up the message that like, if I'm not there to protect and whatever, y- you will not be okay, right? So you can't manage, and you really need me, and that is absolutely not healthy. So we do want appropriately for children to encounter discomfort, and for and the book really talks about things like witnessing and acknowledging it. And people often feel like, but that's not enough. But it is. Yeah. It is. You don't have to solve it. It it here's the piece where I'll get parents to be like, well, I I validated or I was present, but it didn't go away. I'm not. I'm not looking to rush people through an experience, right? Mm. Your child's upset about something. Uh, in the book, the teddy bear loses a balloon that he has, right? So they're proud and the, the mother bear responds with acknowledging, I can see how you feel. She's getting down at his level. She's she's paying attention. He doesn't snap out of it. That's the piece parents are like, but, I, but then they're still upset. It's okay to be upset. Why do we have to rush them? But what you want to see is the child eventually, right? Sort of like peak in their upsetness and then slowly return. But the idea that if I validate, you should immediately be better. What do you want people to do that to you as an adult, right? Immediately say, I see you're upset and you should snap out of it and be fine. It's okay to feel discomfort. It's okay for it not to pass within five seconds. Right. And you can
1: just buy them a the new balloon.
3: And that, right. And and what message would that be?
1: <laughs> right. I'm here
3: to fix it, that you can't
1: tolerate the discomfort. But I want to go a little deeper into how to help the parents tolerate the discomfort or their children's feelings. Because that's where the, the challenge lies, right?
2: Right, right. No, a hundred percent. I mean, that's really the whole idea about co-regulation. It's um, besides that, yes, you're regulating with the child rather than expecting them to regulate for themselves. But part of it is the parent is regulating themselves and through regulating themselves, they're really modeling for that child through kind of worldless observation, how to be regulated. So think about a kid who's having a, a temper tantrum in a store, right? And then the kid is getting very, very dysregulated and, you know, and making a scene and then the parent is there, right? And the parent is probably thinking a lot of automatic thoughts right inside her head. She's thinking like, oh, my goodness, this is so embarrassing. Like, what are people going to think about me? Or, or maybe she's thinking this is my fault because I didn't feed him before we can't, you know, whatever they're thinking, right? Whatever automatic thoughts. And then the parent is starting to get really dysregulated themselves because they're really it's the whole situation is embarrassing. They're very agitated. And then what happens is the child, the situation just ends up sort of, um. know getting worse the child is sort of picking up on the on the parents you know dysregulation and they're getting increasingly dysregulated so if the parent can sort of practice that idea of like self-compassion or it's like talking themselves through it like it's okay kids you know kids kids will tantrum kids this is what happens sometimes this is normal and sort of they can they they can sort of regulate themselves and sort of calmly you know, navigate whatever is happening, you know, maybe not give in to the child because that's also something that ends up happening. You just want to like stop that child from screaming and crying. So I'm just going to kind of give them what they want. Sort of like that's not necessarily our job to give in to our kids. Although if we do, it's okay. Sometimes again, like Rachel said, it's always, we can always repair. we can always learn from it. But quite almost like talk themselves sort of through it and say, it's okay. Kids Kids are going to tantrum. Kids are going to, you know, my kid is going to be sad. My kid is going to be upset. I don't need to rescue them through this. I'm going to try to like, uh, maybe, maybe the parent will not get through her whole shopping list and quickly try to you know kind of get through and you know leave the store and kind of get herself out of that situation maybe she can you know take a breath herself right and just do different things to kind of regulate herself and kind of get through the different situation but that probably will help make a difference from the tantrum you know escalating it's not going to fix it it's not going to stop it it's not a magic pill but it will sort of help at least contain the situation you know a little bit. And I think part of it is the messages that we give ourselves as parents, the expectations, kids are going to tantrum. That's, this is what happens. You know, things aren't always going to be perfect. I'm going to be in a rush. I'm not going to be able to make sure my kid is well-fed and well-rested every time I have an outing. And just again, that self-compassion. And I think just managing, you know, those expectations around, around what, you know, what it means to parent. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean our kids are always going to be happy, you know, and content. And we don't, we don't have to rescue them. And that's really, I think, if, if 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 parents listening remember one thing from this like whole discussion, it would sort of be that like it is okay for your kids to be sad. It's okay for your kids to be upset. It's okay for your kids to be angry. It's not your responsibility to make sure that they're always feeling happy and content.
1: Right, and don't confuse the greater sensitivity to your child's feelings as thinking that that means you have to. Make them happy. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it can be very confusing, you know, to be that more you want to be that more sensitive parent. You want to be attuned, right? So I really want to explain the term co-regulation and go into it more.
3: I want to really highlight the the co-regulation part of it is definitely modeling, but I really want you to understand that it's like an internal natural system. I don't want parents to feel like, oh, do I have this skill? Do I not have this skill? Children are primed little to pick up on our internal state it's actually like protective for them right they need to pay attention to what we we're experiencing so for example if uh, uh and you see this actually you could see this with like a nine-month-old right a stranger comes in and they get themselves into the baby's face and you see the, the baby kind of like glances at mommy like is this okay and if mommy's reaction without words she's not explaining this this is just a really fast system that happens and she kind of smiles or she's like yeah the child then is like, oh, this is fine. And we'll then maybe pay attention to the stranger. So we have an internal system from the time we're born that are very aware of our caregiver state. And and so that's what I want to bring us back to co-regulation. When you do not need to solve it, you do not need to prevent your child from having a negative experience. The only thing they need from you is for you to see them, acknowledge them, but also be in a state that says I can handle you when you're dysregulated, right? You're internally calm. They, they're not looking at you and saying, oh, I wanna be like mommy. They match you because that's how their system is created. So when you a child just to give like, what would this kind of look like, right? So the child's dysregulated again in the supermarket and you recognize this happens, you know, last week it was someone else's kid, this week it's your kid and you're not super dysregulated. Your heart rate is not very fast. I'm slowing down purposely that your, your talking is not loud and fast. You're regulated. The child internally experiences that they recognize that and they can match you and bring their own breathing down. And it's not about you saying, breathe with me. Sometimes it is, some families that is something they do, but it's just you being that way. And this is true with a shot in the doctor's office, right? Mm -hmm. If mommy is thinking, Oh my gosh, this is going to hurt so much. And she's tense and her body's tense and the baby doesn't even speak words right? But he sends his mommy shift into fear. The baby will become dysregulated. She doesn't need to say anything. But if mommy thinks this will be very quick, this is something that's going to keep you safe. I, I don't love it, but I'm okay. I can handle this. That messaging without words will come through. So I just really want parents to know this is an internal system you have. You've got this. You don't need to learn fancy skills. What I want you to do is pay attention to it. I want you to believe that you are enough.
1: Right. But what if you feel like you're not enough? I'm 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 pushing yes. back. I'm pushing back because I'm listening to this and it's so much easier said than done. I'm thinking of two scenarios. One scenario is children varying in temperament. So you have the kid who just sits there and cry and laughs with their shot. <laughs> I have those kids, no matter what the parent does, right? It's easy temperament. And then you have the kids who are much more challenging in temperament. They're screaming when they're like a block away from the doctor's office, for example. They're already so dysregulated and asking the parent to you know, be extra regulated to co-regulate that child is asking more than for the easy temperament child. And another really important situation is when the parent themselves is struggling with their own emotional regulation.
3: Yeah, should I grab that?
2: Yeah, yeah sure. This is
3: something, we, so let's talk about temperaments. First of all, children are their own, right? They're not like little mini us, which is sometimes a problem when parents just see them as an extension. And you might have a child who is more dysregulated, more sensitive than you are. And it's sometimes hard to understand that. Our job is not to make sure they become like us and always be, if I'm regulated, therefore they should be regulated. Our job is to be able to be present. And yes, there are children who no matter how calm and present and prepared you're going to be for shots, they will get dysregulated. But when our focus is on how I can control my child's body and my child's reaction, We will get dysregulated because we cannot do that. Mm. We will become frustrated because we do not have that control. So here's where I would shift with a parent whose child just hates the doctor or the dentist experience. Definitely, you would want to be proactive in the sense of preparing, right? This is what to expect. We actually, sometimes it can get so bad that you can't get to the doctor's office, or the dentist, and that they can even benefit from treatment, some exposure we're preparing, working through. But let's say it's not that intense. So you definitely want to be proactive and you internally are proactive. I know this child's going to be hard. I am not going to bring my four other kids with this child. So definitely proactive is super important. And then letting go of, and therefore, because I did all these things and I'm regulated, therefore you child should have this response. The more we let go of the idea that we have full control of our children's internal experience, the less we're going to be in power struggles and fighting and sort of like shifting into this radical acceptance. This is hard. Mm. God, I wish this kid was a little easier at the doctor's office. It's okay to have that. And I know she probably will not be, and this is going to be long and I'm probably going to need an Advil after I leave because I'm going to have such a headache. Then you will be in a more regulated state because you're expecting it to be difficult. You know what your job is. Regulate myself certainly set boundaries, right? It would not be healthy for a parent who says, this is so uncomfortable. I'm never going to go to the doctor, right? That's would be unhealthy. That That's kind of what it would look like um, as far as a dysregulated child who's not matching exactly your experience. Now let's talk for a minute, because it's super important the parent. It's important for you to know your triggers. And here's the thing about triggers. We don't always realize we're going to have them until after they happen. So sometimes this is not before, it's after we're like, why was I so irritated when I found out my child stole something, right? They took something from school. I wouldn't even call the word steal, but let's say that's your experience. And you just, oh my gosh, you're gonna be up. and you and you slow down, you maybe realize, you know what? I have a family member that actually stole. And I'm I get super triggered that I don't want my children to ever have that experience, but you're forgetting, right? So my reaction, I am triggered to react to an event disproportionately right I might overreact to that child stealing I might and I'm dysregulated and so sometimes we don't know till after and that can be just take some reflection be like what are my triggers what why was my reaction so over the top and I think when we can the first step is identifying what is going on for me internally and that's what I would recommend a parent who finds that like I don't get regulated well is it in certain things is it certain some people find chutzpah really really dysregulating slow down Not in the moment. You you do not have access to reflection. I just, when you're triggered, after, reflect maybe that evening. Why was like, that really set me off. And I acted in a way that like, I do not think was helpful. What's going on? And and maybe sit, maybe you can sit with someone that you trust um, and feel close with to just kind of like flush it out. But that would really be my advice to someone who finds themselves particularly dysregulated with a reoccurring issue. And then I want to say, parents get dysregulated and we can't always regulate our kids take space. I I talk about mommy timeouts. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. you're with a child who, and it can be for like a hundred reasons. Sometimes you can't trigger it. You know, you're up last night with a kid who was throwing up and now you're trying to make supper. And this one is saying they can't study for the test unless you sit down and actually pay attention. And you're like, and then your two-year-old starts having a tantrum. And you know that probably if you just got on the floor for five seconds and like hugged her and said, it's going to be okay. She would go back, but you have no space left within you to be Mm -hmm. present like that you know what? That's okay. It's okay. It's okay to not be regulated. And the best thing is not to push yourself into a situation where you feel like you can't manage, but rather take space, regroup. That can be really not like take space, like heading out and going somewhere. It can literally be like going into the bathroom, taking five deep breaths, picturing that, Oh okay, soon my older daughter's going to come home or my husband and they're going to help me, whatever it is that reframes and then rejoin. You can be triggered as a parent. It's okay.
1: I love that. I love that you're talking about compassion for the parent, right? And I think that we have to, you know, also emphasize how important it is for you to be aware of what your needs are. Yeah. That takes self-awareness, right, on the parent's
2: part. Yeah, no, it really does. I always say self-awareness is really your best friend. Like, it really is a tool. It's a tremendously um, important, you know, parenting tool, really. Like, are, are my buttons being pushed? Like, what's going on for me that this is, like, so upsetting me that I'm having this outsized reaction. Like what is happening? I mean, kind of like be curious, be curious about yourself, you know, and be curious about your child too, because every behavior really is a communication. You know, I feel that it does really help to reframe. Like when your kid is just giving you such a hard time, they're ju- you just can't make them do what you want them to do, what you need them to do. Right. To kind of take a step back and say, my child is not necessarily giving me a hard time my child is having a hard time mm. what is going on oh i love that uh, and i think that just you know and it's hard to do it in the mm. moment and like razel said and you may not be able to in the moment in the moment maybe you'll do it afterwards maybe you'll say what was going on for my child that this was so difficult for them and i also think it's about managing your expectations and planning and and preparing because it's like taking your kid to the doctor is so difficult and stressful right maybe you need to get bring an ipad maybe you just need to stick an ipad in their hand and just get through it, and that's okay. Or maybe you need to have a partner, you know, or your spouse mm-hmm. come and come with you or go, go instead of you. Maybe, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to get through, that's okay. Like we don't have to put these expectations on themselves. Remember there was one parent who, you know, worked a very long day and came home and just was like very, the thing that just really was so hard for them after a long day of work was like doing homework with their with their kids, right? And one particular child, it was like, they're always getting into battles. But So what What this parent finally, after time and reflection and support, uh, gave herself permissions to hire a homework helper. You know what? I am just delegating this one thing that brings me so much tension because what happened? The parent felt like I should be right. doing homework with my child. I should be on top of what's going on with the schoolwork. I should not be outsourcing this. What ended up happening is the the relationship was really impacted by this power struggle, by the like negativity that surrounded this experience of doing the homework together. Instead of the time together after work being filled with like sort of joyful moments or moments right. of connection, right, moments of compassion, it was really all about this like uh, this 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 power struggle over the homework. And once that was delegated, and the parents sort of gave themselves permission to delegate it. They were able to have more moments of connection and more moments of joy, like in their in their parenting and with that with that child, which really makes like all the difference.
1: I love that. I'm gonna repeat your line because I love it so much. I'm gonna repeat it slowly. <laughs> My child is not giving me a hard time. My child is having a hard time. I'm not the
2: original author of it. It's just something I've heard. I I don't know who the source is, but it's like something that I've heard and like really resonated. I use it a lot in trainings and just kind of, it's very much part of a trauma-informed approach when you look at someone who's like, again, having an outside reaction. So when you use your trauma-informed lens, instead of saying what's wrong with you, Instead, you think, what happened to you? What happened to you that you're acting in this way? So it's very much like consistent with that sort of using that lens to kind of look at behaviors and people, right, and reactions with that with that sort of approach of like what's going on for them.
1: Right. And Razel, you mentioned earlier how it can be hard to have a child that's so much more sensitive, you know, than you. But you know what's also hard? You being sensitive and having a child just like you. I see that a lot as a pediatrician. Yeah,
3: anxiety can run in a family Mm -hmm. and you can definitely have where they can feed off each other. And that's why it's really important to understand that if your anxiety is taking over, it's not like a healthy... Understanding of the world, right? So what you'll have is right. The child says, "This is so scary," and the mother says, "I know." And that, right? And then you can mm-hmm. imagine this escalation. I've I've certainly experienced it in the therapy yeah. room. And I've heard examples where they'll feed off each other. And mm-hmm. the key to that is we're not going to make anxious children with anxious mommies not anxious. What we're going to want to try to do is help them sort of not have the anxiety so internal as like a correct understanding of the environment, but to recognize, oh, this is my, so uh, like externally recognize, oh, this is my anxiety speaking. Like I am thinking that this is not manageable, but that's my anxiety. So we kind of create like distance between this internal state of anxiety as like, this is how things are. Let it navigate your decisions. We try to put some distance, but yes, yes, these things can be genetic and we can feed off each other. Um, and there can be sh- great strength in being right. able to understand each other and experience the world similarly. It helps a child feels understood and seen. Um, there's there's many yeah. reasons why it's good to biologically be similar, uh, but it can also, yeah, it can it's also be a double-edged sword
1: because you can understand your child, you could be more empathic, but you can also have trouble, right, with over-identification, right, and right, amplifying right. the child's anxiety. And in fact, I interviewed a psychologist, uh, Dr. Michelle Kanzi. And she does not treat ch- children with anxiety without treating the whole family or the parents. Yeah, They have to do, they have to have family counseling as well. And so I wanna put a plug here for, for parents in terms of both family counseling and individual counseling for yourself if you need it. Mm-hmm.
3: But, we see parents,
1: mm-hmm.
3: when I have parents, I do not say this as like, to be nice, you are the expert on your child. Why wouldn't I work with the expert on the child if I want to help the child? I invite you to the room, not because I judge you and think I know better. And actually, that's a horrible stance to think that I'm the expert in that way. I invite you to the room because you have expertise. I have expertise. I know that in the mental health, but you have expertise on your child, but will work in your system. So that's why, yeah, I think parents are super important. I do not want to replace a parent. I do not want to be a better parent in the therapy room. I want to be a partner. And I asked myself, and this is sort of leaning to what Sivy's talking about as far as behavior. When I see a behavior, whether it's in a caregiver or a child, I, I just say, why?
0: What? Why?
3: And, and that curiosity shot showing, why is this behavior helping you? Or why do you feel the need to do that? As opposed to, let's get the skills, so you stop right. this. Because when we miss that why, which, by the way, we don't always get with kids, because they're not able to reflect. But we hypothesize. so like Knowing things about them, why does this behavior, although very problematic, seem to be helping them before we jump into, and this is how what you should do instead. And I, I hope I offer that kindness also to parents and parents should offer it to themselves and to their spouses, that sort of kindness of like, you make sense, your behavior, although maybe not helpful and maybe you wish you didn't have it, but there's a part of it that makes sense. Let's be curious about it, let's understand it because that will be the best way to address how to get new behavior or other problem solving ways.
1: Right, Are you talking about the parent's response to the child or the child's response? Because I was talking a a few minutes ago about um, trying to help the parent with their reaction.
3: I think both reactions. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm curious. But what I want to let parents know is that they can trust their experience of their child. You know, yes, there's room for professional help. But when you're in an environment where you're seeking out professional help, you should still recognize your expertise Mm -hmm. of your child. You've lived with them. You yeah. know, them, you know, sometimes before they were born, right? You carry them. And, and that's a really important piece that we really, I want parents to walk away feeling empowered. You are important. You, you have room, even if things get to the point where maybe you do need more support, recognize that you're still part of the solution.
1: I love this. I love it. It's very empowering, right? Because by focusing on a parent who's struggling, I don't want to be um, looking at the parent as broken. Right. I don't want to be disempowering. Oh, look, now we found something we have to fix in you. So I really like how you're looking at it. The parent is struggling with their own anxiety. They also have a key to the child because they do understand the child. Right. And they can tell you a lot that the child might not be able to, to verbalize So That's a power. That's a superpower.
2: Right. Right. We really believe that parents and most people actually know what they need to feel better. You kind of sometimes have to help them, you know, sort of tease it out. You know, they're, they're the experts on their own recovery, their own process, you know. And we really believe that that's kind of how we approach our work with parents, just I guess a couple of like tools, because again, we really want it like to give that Mm -hmm. to parents and to kind of give them almost like practical tools. I think it's important. We talk a lot about self-care for parents. I get, I get triggered by that word also. I think some of the stuff that is said is just almost like so ridiculous and unrealistic, but basically I do think it's important for parents to know there's a difference between self-care and self-preservation, right? Mm -hmm. So self-preservation, getting childcare, getting help, you know, getting enough sleep, you know, um, you know, eating properly, whatever it is is possibly getting cleaning up, whatever it is, that is not to me self-care, that's self-preservation. But self-care is about sort of filling your cup, like engaging in activities or things that sustain you, that replenish you, that sort of fill you so that you then have something to sort of to give over. And there's a difference between self-care and self-preservation. I want parents to give them self-permission, not just to self-preserve, but to really engage in things that are going to fill their sort of their cups so that they are now in a position to nurture more to their to their family so or or just to give or just to give themselves for their for its own sake (laughs) for their own sake you know so I think that that's like one thing I think is like really just like important for parents to sort of know and have that permission and kind of like be able to kind of tell the difference because I think a lot of parents engage more in self-preservation than actual Mm. self-care
1: right and not to confuse like doing a session of yoga that's not really what you're talking about here or having some hot cocoa (laughs)
2: <laughs> right, right. Taking a bubble bath—that's wonderful, and that may really be very nurturing. But that may not necessarily be what you actually really need to care for your own emotional needs. Uh, and very often, actually, self-care is also about boundaries, right? It's about giving yourself permission to, you know, pursue your own dreams or follow, you know, sort of meet your own needs or that acknowledge your needs and sort of expect that they be met, you know. It, but but all of that is really important for parents to be able to then have what to give, right, to their to their families. And then just in terms of other tools, you know, I mean, I think Razel touched a lot and almost like taking a space, taking a break, you know, when a child is dysregulated, saying saying to be calm or even, or even telling the child in that moment to take a breath will not necessarily be effective. But if the parent themselves takes a breath, right, they're kind of modeling it for that child. And sometimes the best tool that we need for a moment of like really high like dysregulation is just distraction almost like maybe you need to walk away. Maybe you need to just give yourself some space. Maybe you need to just get involved with something else that is not maladaptive. That actually is a coping tool distraction can very much be a coping tool you know so i think that's also something parents need to sort of give themselves permission you know to sort of do and this just in terms of um, you know we spoke about self-awareness so i think that's very important so that self-reflection and self-awareness and whether it's having a peer group or maybe getting you know a professional help if you need it to kind of help yourself in that process i think that really you know helps a lot you know curiosity i think we spoke about um and again just not being afraid to make you know mistakes like there was a famous story about Thomas Edison right he did a thousand experiments to create a, a battery right and he failed at all of that And he was interviewed by a journalist who asked how it felt to fail a thousand times. And he said, I succeeded a thousand times. I succeeded in showing what doesn't work a thousand times, right? (laughs) So it's kind of like that idea of like, firstly, that we model that for our own kids as well, right? Like we don't really expect perfection and sort of making mistakes is really just part of the process. And that also includes making parenting mistakes.
1: Right. I'm going to throw one thing in there in in terms of self-compassion as a parent is that if you're a support group, what we call your support group, you're your family, your friends, is making you feel worse, well, find a way to distance from that. <laughs> I see right, that
2: all the time. Right, right, you have to create boundaries yeah. then about those yeah. type of relationships or people that are really not being supportive and that's okay for you to do that, you know?
1: Right, do you wanna talk for a few minutes about the program you mentioned to me before about the parent um, program? This. are you talking
2: about space? There was a program you mentioned before anxiety in parents? Yeah, so, well, actually, Razel's certified in space. She can speak much more in detail, I guess, give like a general overview, but we're seeing an increase in anxiety for mm-hmm. children, even very young children. And we're also seeing an increase in anxiety in parents and caregivers, which is not surprising because it is, right. often, you know, correlated. Um, and so there's a very, so more some of the more traditional approaches to treating anxiety, usually it's like CBT for kids, right? Generally used for like, let's say six and up. Um, But there's this very novel approach by Dr. Ellie Leibowitz from Yale, actually, um, called Space, which is supportive parenting parenting for anxious childhood emotions. And you're basically treating the parent's accommodation of that child's anxiety. So you have like a, a child who's maybe afraid of thunderstorms or the rain. So when there's a very rainy day out where there's thunder, the parent, because they want to ease their child's discomfort, will allow that child to stay home, right? So inadvertently accommodating to the child's anxiety. So this treatment sort of treats that parental accommodation of the child's anxiety. It's very kind of revolutionary. And I think Razel is is your certified in space, right? I think you, she went through a kind of a rigorous process. So I'll let her give more details about it. But it's very been a very innovative approach that we've actually trained a number of our therapists in at OHELM.
1: So, I'm sorry. So, I just make it clear at OHEL people can reach out to OHEL and get this particular therapy.
2: Yes. That's fantastic. So, Razel, do you want to talk a little bit more about it? Yeah.
3: I mean, I think it just leans on some of the concepts we talk about that you as a parent are the solution and that we can impact our child's emotional health by making our own changes. And again, that idea that I don't need to, you need to learn the skills and you need to write this sort of talk down to children, but to kind of recognize, no, I can be the source of healing. So the work is, I've done this work without ever meeting the child. I'll do like an assessment, but I do not work with the child at all. I work work with the parent to help uh, them sort of give over the messaging of that, like you, the child can experience discomfort. And again, these are children with anxiety disorders. So their level of discomfort is really, really high Mm -hmm. and their level of refusal to engage in things is really high. And good parents are accommodating. You know why? Because it's hard to see your child be Mm -hmm. so distressed. Like I, I just want to really make that clear. This is not judgment. Like how could you not let your child experience distress? I mean, some of this distress is very, very, impactful in family functioning like I can understand why a parent is like you know what we're just going to avoid this Mm. but the problem is it kind of feeds the monster and that monster which mentioned a little bit before is that you can't handle this Uh, therefore I'll protect you from it and the world is going to have bumps and moments that Feel like I can't manage and the more we set a child up for that's resilience the more we set them up for the idea that they can manage or these are the supports they can lean on to get through to the other side the more they're ready to go out into the world and encounter discomfort and again some discomfort is typical and and some discomfort is not we cannot prevent right children from having uncomfortable and negative experiences throughout their lifespan but we can prepare them to manage and that's really where this conversation is, right? Helping them, uh, recognizing how important we are. And that's really what space um, really leans on.
1: That is fantastic. So I don't know if you want to talk for a few minutes about the program
2: for older kids for resilience. The resilience workbook or in general, mm-hmm. we do a lot of work firstly working with, you know, let's say lower school kids and, and adolescents as well. I mean, kids really, of course, the whole developmental life, like obviously we have, you know, I guess I think of our work in terms of uh, reactive and proactive, right? So we have the treatment piece, right? When we have kids that, Come in and or and parents that need you know sort of treatment for whatever symptoms are going on that are interfering with their functioning. And then we have kind of the proactive piece, which is the sort of prevention work that we do, building social emotional skills, building resilience. We do a lot of work in schools. Firstly, we actually have our pilot. We piloted a program this last year called Resilient Schools. It's a very kind of comprehensive approach, similar in the way that it's a parallel process of like building resilience in teachers so that Mm. they can help build resilience like in their students. There's a lot of focus on like teacher sort of well being. And our whole approach is is in general in the school-based work, we use this kind of multi-tiered model. So instead of that traditional way of like, oh, the school-based counselor is coming in and working a few few hours a week with the quote, I put in quotes, quote-unquote, problem children, right? The, The kids that are like giving us trouble. We really focus on universal interventions, the idea that all children need to be exposed to social emotional learning. All kids need to have resilience building interventions. We're not interested in sort of like targeting those like few kids, you know, and we're sort of labeling them. Now it is important to have different tiers of interventions, right? So there's a universal interventions, the selective interventions, which is maybe 20% of kids that are really struggling. They really need extra support. Maybe we'll do school-based, you know, counseling or social skills groups or whatever. And then those like sort of indicated the top tier, maybe five to 10% of kids that actually really need formal mental health treatment. So we either have some clinics actually co-located in the school setting, or we would have sort of a warm hands up to our clinics because we have one in Brooklyn and Faraqui, but it's the idea of like these three tiers of like interventions. So that's just our general model but focusing on the universal interventions, which I think is most relevant, I guess, to this conversation is we have created actually a lot of curricula to actually use in schools. And we really try very hard to create user-friendly tools because teachers are so overwhelmed. I mean, they, I mean, this, we can talk for an hour about that. That's a whole other story, but teachers have been through so much through COVID then they're, they're finding themselves almost in the role of like deputized mental health professionals. It's not only about teaching history and math, they're dealing with all sorts of like issues in the classroom. It's really, really hard on that on teachers. So we want to be able to like not expect too much, but give them like user friendly tools that they actually could use in the classroom an easy way that are kind of replicable and scalable and things like that. So we've actually created a bunch of tools. So we have a middle school anxiety prevention program called MAP which is nine lessons that we actually give to sixth graders that deal, we see a lot of anxiety developed usually around that time period. There's a lot of changes, transitions, you know, puberty, bar and bat mitzvah, you know, a change from, you know, homeroom to departmental, a lot of academic pressure, peer pressure, things like that. So it's a kind of this whole program that kind of helps kids understand the different transition and gives them a lot of Tools, you know, we teach them about emotions and the brain, conflict resolution. You know, there's a there's a lot of different modules that are actually teaching like very practical skills to kids. So that's the MAP program. And then for lower school, we have a resilience workbook. So I had mentioned that actually kind of started this whole conversation. We had the COVID-19 resilience workbook that we did with kids during COVID. So we actually created a non-COVID version cool. and that we're gonna roll out in the fall. We're actually really excited about it. It has an outer space theme. We really tried to make it very engaging and it's very much based on like the latest research, so like everything that we talk about, like we're very into the idea of like adding value not doing something what's been done before. Um, and really sort of, you know, tapping into the sort of the latest understanding and research. So a huge section of the workbook is about interoception It's about teaching kids about emotion for, for their age level, right? Because the preschool book was written more for little ones, and this is a little bit more sophisticated understanding, but that's appropriate for that age group about what emotions feel like inside their body. We're very, very careful, again, to like, you know, sort of frame it like this is what, you know, angry can feel like in a body. What does your body feel like right. when it's angry, right? Because it's different for everyone, and there's a lot of place to write and to draw. That's a big part of the book is like, you know, emotions. And we cover a lot like some of the seven basic emotions, you know, happy, sad, angry, worried, you know, frustration, etc. And of course, calm, very important. Calm is the baseline. And then we also have a whole section of the book is really about coping tools. So it's very much about teaching kids like sort of different types of coping tools. It's kind of loosely based on this model called Basic PH, so Islands of Resilience was pioneered by Dr. Muli Lahad. And it kind of um, is based on the idea that we all have like, there's different coping streams and then we all sort of have them and we tend to favor like a couple of coping streams over the others, right? So it's, um you know, um basic pH stands for, right? you know, pH is physical, you know, movements, and then it's belief systems, cognition, affect, you know, talking, right, and sort of needing that sort of emotional support, social connections, imagination, kind of creativity, and things like that. So we kind of like tapped into those concepts and we created almost like this space toolkit like in the resilience-based workbook of like these different coping tools that kids can sort of draw upon. So I can connect, I can create, I can move, I can say to myself a lot of like self-compassion, I can use my senses, which is actually based on like DBT skills type of um, Mm -hmm. of ideas of like regulating through using your senses. And and it's kind of like this uh, power toolkit and kids can kind of see, oh, what are the tools that I like to use? So, So to teach them from a very young age, of like, I actually, I have I have tools. I have things that I like to do. What are the things that I like to do? So they can almost like pull them out a little bit more, like have them at the ready when they need it sort of creating that awareness in them. So that's actually a big part of the workbook, that section about the sort of the power toolkit. And there's a lot of other things in there, like service to others. We know that's a very important part of um, resilience and building resilience is giving children opportunities to contribute to the well-being of others, right? So we have a whole section about how do you give to others and things like that, and who are the people that you, you know, you're the, it's very important for kids, obviously, to have that safe person, right? And in terms of those like healthy connections, people they can trust. So like who are the people that you can talk to at school, at home and other places, sort of like helping them identify that um, safe person for them and a lot of other different sort of sections in the workbook. Um, But those are kind of the main, I guess the main features is sort of the coping toolkit and then the interception piece. So we're really proud of it and it'll be rolling out in the fall and you'll hopefully be hearing more about it at that time. Are parents involved with this program? I'm sorry. Are parents involved with this program? It sounds like it's a school-based program, correct? Right. So it's it's a workbook. So like the last workbook was actually used by many parents with their kids, but we mm-hmm. you know use it on a very large scale, like in schools. Like that mm-hmm. was kind of the platform that we used to kind of roll it out. It is something that can be used with parents. I do think it's unrealistic for parents to kind of be sitting down with this workbook with kids, the way that we believe is a best practice is Mm -hmm. not to like sit down and do it all at once. We kind of, part of our training is doing a couple pages at a time, having supplementary activities, right? So that you kind of like, you know, reinforce some of the concepts in the book and have different kinds of activities that kind of build on some of the ideas in the book. Maybe we have a piece on gratitude so then the teacher can start a gratitude journal and, you know, do other kinds of things that again, reinforce the concept. So not to like do everything at once because you really want it to have time to kind of sit and you know for kids to like experience the world you know kind of right. integrating some of these different sort of concept concepts it's very much i guess you could say like a starting off point but mm-hmm. not an end point you know it's kind wait, of like wait. Yeah, right. What, what I meant what I
1: meant was, yeah. you know, when my kids were in school, we would often get letters saying at school, your child is working on X. I didn't mean to give it all to the parents to do. I meant to connect it so that the parents can reinforce it at home.
2: Yes. Oh, yes. Very much so. So as part of sort of this package that we're pulling together. So there's going to be teacher training and also will be like parent workshops. Exactly. So that because that's, that's right. really the main way right. that the kids are going to learn right. is by the caregivers around them, the parents, the teachers, modeling the concept, using the words, using the language. And really, that's how it's gonna really resonate the most. So that's definitely gonna be part of the process. And I saw from the COVID-19 book the the, the outcomes that I think were really the best that we were able to really see were exactly where those kind of things happened, where the teachers, you know, did it in bite-sized pieces. They modeled, there was parent carryover, yeah. and they kind of like owned the process themselves, you know. And I think that we really saw like huge differences. Like I, I literally had teachers tell me, like I had half my my students were like bouncing off the walls and then like we started using the workbook and then the teacher like kind of reinforced and gave reinforcements when they would like should have used the skill from the workbook and she she literally saw a difference in her whole class so like I think we saw the best outcomes when the kind of um, the teacher or the parent whoever kind of made themselves part of the process you know just like hand the child the workbook so that that's kind of what we're going to try to build into the training and we're going to have a teacher guide and all of that when it comes out in the fall. So this is a teaser. I want to come back with you guys and
1: and focus on that in greater depth because we're just really scratching the surface. Yeah, this is an
3: older issue, but, you know, I get parents all the time, teach them skills not to be angry. And again, I work with zero to five. The idea of self-regulating and knowing that your stream that works is not appropriate in preschool age. Mm -hmm. Primarily regulation is going to be through an attachment figure. And when the foundation is set up that I can co-regulate, then I'm available to self-regulate and tap into my own streams, but when a child doesn't have experiences, and I know we're not talking, we're talking resilience and we're not necessarily, but there are children who are not going to have experiences of positive attachment and the way that they feel seen and they feel their experiences can be managed. They are not going to be really good at um, self-regulating. And the idea of talking to a child, even at seven, eight and be like, Use your skills. Here's the skills. If we don't step back and say, wait, have they been seen or if we're aware that the child had interpersonal trauma, we're doing them a really big disservice. I just like, you know, because I, I all the time get which skills should they learn? You know, and I'm working obviously with the five to 10% where there is diagnosis of a mental mm-hmm. health issue or there's a trauma history. And I think, you know, just recognizing that all this needs to be done in the context of relationships. Right. But
1: I'm going to mention repair again. Right. That nobody should listen to this and say, okay, well I missed that zone.
2: No, never, never. And you don't have to go around again. Sorry.
1: I
3: I also (laughs) really want to highlight and I we don't have so much time, but just to you know you don't need to be it there are actually previously before we were very industrialized people lived in small villages and everybody helped with the caregiving often people lived in homes with grandparents and and what was the protective nature of that the protective nature was that if mommy wasn't available maybe she was early in pregnancy and really wasn't feeling well or maybe she didn't have the capacity for whatever reason grandma picked up
2: mm-hmm. sometimes
3: just that day and so when we we live a little bit more isolated but we do have other people who can step in so even if there are reasons that attachment is complicated or problematic, it doesn't need to just be you. There, is, there can be, and we encourage people to have other healthy adult figures interacting with your child. And if you have healthy attachment, those other healthy adult figures just reinforce these concepts. But if for some reason there is significant misattunement, not the occasional, other people like teachers can scaffold and help Right. right, and in
1: the middle ground, when maybe there's not significant misattunement or, or attachment issues, but where you're struggling with it, you can get help to be better with that. That's what I meant by repairing. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah, wanna, depressed
3: uh, parents yeah. are, it's very significant. I'm sure you see in pediatric work right. with little children. So get, take care of yourself. You're taking care of your kids.
1: Right, or just a lot of stresses in your life. You may right. not be able to do this right now. Don't think that, you know, it's too late. It's never too late. Right, right. so I want to really.
2: Yeah, wanna, no. Absolutely, it's never too late, and we're actually bringing a new model into uh, OHAL attachment-based family therapy, which is again meant for teens, and it's exactly this to kind of like work on sort of repairing, you know, attachment issues between parents and children. is absolutely never too late, and a big part of it is that like self-awareness always is your best and Almost acknowledging ways you may not have been able to be there for your child, not because you were a bad parent. Maybe you were overwhelmed. Maybe you had your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe the needs were just so great. Whatever the reasons are. And sort of, you know, and 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 working towards repair. It's never, it's never too late to do that.
1: This was fantastic. I learned a lot. And I'm going to ask you if we can do this again, because all the stuff we talked about at the end really needs at least one more
2: episode. So I hope you will. Sure, sure. No, thank you for having us. We love talking about this, like our favorite yeah. topic. We could talk about it for hours. But
1: it's 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 really it's really foundational and it's really important. You're doing amazing work and I'm looking forward to part two. That's what I have to say. Oh, thank you thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this with me and good
2: Shabbos. Take care, have a good job. Right, Thanks
0: for listening to the JOMA Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, Check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's dot aorg or email us at health at joma.org.